Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Silvio Massana on the show today of Monte Secondo. Hello, sir. How are you? Very well, thanks. Thank you. Thank Good. you for being here. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. So you were born in North Africa? No, I wasn't. I was born in Florence, but I was raised in North Africa. I grew up there in Tunisia uh, until I was 18, and then uh, I went to um, college in Florence. So I was there from... Uh, almost zero to 18 because I was just born in Florence out of a desire of my parents to have us, my sister and I, Italians, because my father and my grandfather were born in Tunisia, in North Africa. And um, at that time it was um, under De Gaulle, who uh, was president, you know, probably mostly, most people know him, uh, president of France at that time. And he had, uh, rule that the third generations would be of the nationality of the country they were born in. So in this regard, we would have been my sister and I French. And my father was a very nationalist, I guess. And so he wanted us to have to be Italian. So uh, they flew my mother and him to Italy, to Rome for my sister and to Florence for me. What was it like during your period of time in North Africa? What was your dad like? My father was a musician and um, the memories I have, he, he died when I was 22. Uh, the memories I have are of a person who was very much into his world, his own world, music world. He was a true artist, I think, in his own way. Uh, he was a musician after the war in Rome. Um, unfortunately, what I have had is mostly um, stories from the past and I had not the chance to leave him as a musician, but a lot of good stories. He did play some music for a while when while he was in North Africa, but he couldn't meet there. He couldn't have the, there, there were not enough good musicians for him to play. He was a jazz player, saxophone player. And, um, um, a funny person, a nice, nice, nice man. Not really a father in the sense like he would never tell me, you know, study or wear a sweater or eat, you know, <laughs> parent stuff. He was, no, he was in his own, uh, his own world. And uh, I loved him. He, he was a great man. And um, the memories I have from uh, the wine part, which is actually where all comes from in a way is uh, the smell. The smell of the winery in uh, Grombalia, that was the town, it was, uh, it was 30 kilometers south of Tunis. Um, my grand-grandfather had landed, uh, not landed, but because he was, a, 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 he was working on ships, he was supposed to be a captain, and uh, he stayed in Tunisia and uh, then made some investments and uh, made money there. and. He had some, I mean, my grandfather and my father had some buildings in Tunis and um, there was a gas station also and uh, land, 
vineyards in uh, southern in the south south of Tunisia. It was near Cabon, so it was uh, halfway between. For the one who knows it, it was halfway between Tunis and Hamamet, um, and it was called Grombalia. I remember it was probably about sixty hectares in acres. That would be times four, right? Uh, times 2.3, Time, so, okay. so about 150. Yes, and it was all uh, goblet planted, uh, you know, same type of vineyards like you would see in, in Bordeaux. So short goblet and uh, probably Merlot, Cabernet. Um, there was no bottling at that time. The house was an old colonial house. And I have very fond memories from that uh, that house that was then taken by the government. Um, and uh, I still remember the smell of the winery. Th that stayed with me all my life, really. It's, uh, it's amazing. I don't have really other memories. My father was kind of an old style um, wine maker, wine, uh, what would be the world? Maybe one entrepreneur or... Basically, he 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 wasn't working in the winery. He was, you know, he had people working, and uh, so he sort of. Um, I mean, he you know he managed the farm, and it was all concrete tanks. And uh, that's what I remember. Basically, it's the smell. Yes. He purchased property in the Chianti Classico zone of Tuscany in the 1960s. Yes, towards the end of the 60s, in the 60s, yes, 63 and then 66. He first bought a um, house with some land in northern part of Tuscany in the Mugello. That was the house where we spent a lot of uh, our summer vacation. Before that, I, I was okay. I was seven years ago, seven years old when he he bought it. So that yes, that put us around sixty three, sixty four. Before that, our parents used to take us to Switzerland because my mother thought that uh, children should have spent some time at the seaside, but then they should they would need the fresh air from the mountains. So after one month in the at the beach in Tunis, then we would go to Switzerland. I don't know if this has changed really, but there was a lot of racism at that time. And we would go there and my father, my sister and I are pretty dark skinned and my mother was blonde and blue eyed, but you know, we were pretty dark. So especially with after a month at the seaside. So we would really suffer from sort of like a xenophobic, can I say that? Yes, it's not a proper word, attitude. And it was not pleasant, but the, you know, it was beautiful mountains and the air was indeed very fresh and the water too was very fresh, but I, I don't, I, I didn't enjoy it. It was boring. Um, and then they bought this uh, uh, house in uh, in the Mugello, it was called La Morella, which, I mean, it, it means the brunette, La Morella. It's, uh, it was um, a house that was, that had been built by, Swiss architect as well. And uh, it was not in the style of the Tuscan house. It was really like a Swiss chalet. Um, so the house was very comfortable, not very pretty, but it was a beautiful place. And so we did spend some time there. And then a few years later, my father, who had some income from uh, land that his father had planted in Libya, it was a large property there. It was 3,000 hectares of olive groves in Libya that um, came from a not very glorious part of Italian history, you know, if uh, of the colonies and of Mussolini. So it's, uh, uh, but that was, you know, that's what it is. And there was some land that was given to the Italians and then was actually planted and cultivated in a very beautiful way. And uh, I remember going there with him. He would, we would drive down to Tripoli. Uh, we had a Citroen at that time, I remember. And um, it was 3,000 hectares of olive groves, all on sand. It was beautiful. It was amazing. And um, so with the money he was getting from there, he had then purchased the, the farm I'm working on now, which is Monte Secondo in Cerbaia. 
20 hectares of land with a house that at that time he did not even pay. Uh, the price was made by the actor and the owner said, well, you know, there is a house too. And it was like a minus more than a plus. And I have seen some of the papers, I mean, of the places he had uh, visited before buying that. And it, it's amazing. I mean, there were some astonishing properties for sale there at that time, you know, 60 hectares in Pansano and fantastic places. And actually, uh, a lot of German people, British and Americans have bought fantastic properties in the 50s and the 60s in the Chianti area, in the Tuscany area. And um, that was, you know, what it was at that time. There was no agriturismo. People didn't want to live outside. The wine in Chianti was not uh, good business. Still, it's not, but, uh, uh, you know, it was um, it was really something that people did not want to get into. It was um, the winemakers, the wine producer there were the few big uh, families, the few, you know, the Antinori, Frescobaldi, I mean, it was uh, Brolio and uh, Ricasoli. The, I guess everything was in their hands and... Um, a lot of small producers would sell the grapes to those big wineries or the wine. I, I don't know exactly, probably both of a little bit of both. And um, so it was a good time to buy. And then he planted 14 hectares of vineyards with what was available at that time, which was uh, the damage had already been done on the selection of the, you know, clonal selection. So a lot of um, the old Sangiovese uh, types, sure, yeah, sure, so had, had been lost already, lost. and uh, so that's what he did. And uh, so the house in the north was a house where we would spend summer, and uh, then he bought this uh, this land. He planted the vineyards, and uh, then. The properties in Libya were taken by Gaddafi, and so there was no more money. And so the the winery, which was planned in the first place to be built, was not built. And uh, he joined the co-op and started selling the the grapes at the co-op. And you had moved to New York at some point. Not yet. At that time, I was still in Florence. Um, I did I did first uh, study engineering, and then I, I actually graduated in economics. But my dream was to be a musician, so then I applied to Berkeley in Boston, Berkeley College of Music, and um, but my father had already died at that time because uh, I was still in, 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 uh, in college when he died. And then I finished, and uh, it was very hard to, to make a living with a farm because the co-op would pay I remember at that time it was, um, they would pay by the weight and by the sugar. So it was embarrassing. I mean, I remember the, the harvest there. I mean, we would load the, the, the trucks behind the tractor and it was so much, you know, we would step on the grapes. I mean, I know it's not very, but that's the way it was. I mean, we would just like try to sell as much as we could in terms of weight and of sugar. And um, you know, I didn't know better, I, I, that's what I did. Then you know, and my dream anyway was to make to be a musician. And uh, uh, with the wine, I did not have the at that time I didn't have a clear idea of how to change what he had done. So for me, it was I I don't I don't even think I thought about making something different from what he had done. So was, you know, what he had done was the right way. So if I couldn't make uh, money with the way he had set it up, you know, it there was no other way. And I had no money. So I applied to Berkeley. I got in and uh, then I told my mother and my sister that uh, they 
would have to take over the farm or I was going to sell because I didn't want to stay there. So I sold the farm. I sold the farm. It was a difficult time still to sell the farm. There was a, I finally find, found, found a buyer and um, he was a guy from uh, Trentino, from Northern Italy. He would drive an Alfa Romeo and he, the guy was very, he was very enthusiastic. I mean, he would come there, he would sleep on the floor because the house was not really livable at that time. I mean, there was uh, no heat, it was raining inside. He would come there and spend a few days there. And uh, so he gave me a down payment and um, I then left during the summer, went to Boston. And then in September, I call, I remember calling my mother. I said, well, have you got the second payment from uh, the buyer? And she said, no, he, he withdrew. So we got to keep the down payment, which was very helpful because, you know, there were some debts that needed to be taken care of. And, um, and my mother said, well, don't worry, I will, I will run the farm and so stay and do what you want to do. So I stayed in Boston. My sister was, uh, she's been a journalist in her life, in her career. And uh, she was at that time, I think she was in Paris already had moved to Moscow. She was 10 years in Moscow as the director of Agence France Presse. And um, so I stayed in Boston and I actually ended up staying in the States for 15 years. And meanwhile, my mother was there. She redid the Agriturismo and she kept selling the grapes to the co-op. So things were actually, you know, there was some extra income coming from the Agriturismo and uh, it was, um, was working this way. You married Catalina. You had children. Your mother's getting a little older. Yes. Um, 1992, our first child was born, Pietro. He was born in New York, then Luca, two and a half years later. And then my mother got ill. And um, then I spoke to my sister and said, well, we either have to sell the farm or to one of us has to move back. Um, meanwhile, I had worked in New York. I was a musician. I was playing in, you know, in clubs and I did some film music, some production. I had a little recording studio. It was fun, it was good years. And uh, after the children were born to make a, you know, I needed more money. And uh, so I, I actually asked um, one of the person who's my, now my importer, my US importer and Kevin McKenna, I asked him, well, Kevin, can you help me get a job or find something because I need some extra money. And uh, a couple of days later, he calls me. I said, listen, uh, Michael Skurnik is looking for somebody. And I said, what should I do? Well, you should sell wine. I said, well, I don't know how to sell wine. I said, well, you know, you could learn. So I went to visit Michael and um, I guess we clicked. And it was um, two years of uh, very good experience. It was uh, at that time a lot of... Uh, mm, person who then eventually f uh, created their own company were there. So there was a lot of energy, a lot of... Um, David Bowler, Doug Polaner. David Bowler, Michael Wheeler, Doug Polaner, Jake Halper. Uh, it was amazing. And I was, you know, I walked in there and I could feel like these guys, they knew a lot and they had so much passion. And uh, every Friday we would have tastings at uh, Skernik and... Uh, for me, it was a whole uh, new world that was opening up. I mean, uh, up until then, I mean, we were drink, drinking Concha y Toro, you know, the the cab from, I think it's Chile, you know, it was $5, the, uh, the Magnums, you know, 1.5 liters. Uh, yeah, that's what we drank, that's what we could afford. And, um, and then suddenly I was exposed to all these incredible wines and uh, which I knew existed, but I didn't really have the chance or very rarely to try them. They were expenses, difficult to find. And so it was really, a, you know, a door that was opening and a um, whole new experience that was coming along. And uh, also all this energy, this passion for wine really got me somewhere. 
so I was there for a while, and then I, uh, after I was uh, with Michael, I was with Livio Panebianco for a year, I think, a year and a half. Very different company, of course, and it was just the two of us, it was Livio um, and myself and Stephanie, who was in the office. So it was a smaller, much smaller company, much different, but also a good learning experience, and uh, it was different, very different. And while I was there, while I was with Livio, I had met with um, Lucio Gomiero. He's the owner of Vinalta. And uh, actually he made, I think quite a lot of money uh, growing radicchio in California. Lucio, who has the... And then uh, Gregory Perucci, who was from uh, Puglia. He's... Uh, so I met these two guys and they wanted to, they knew I was selling wine, we had met and uh, they wanted to create a distribution in uh, in uh, in the States. And so they approached me, then it did not go through, but we you know we sort of, uh, be, we, we became friends. And, um, and then one day I remember Gregory calling me from the States and he said, from uh, Italy, I said, well, we want to make a tasting comparing Zinfandel and um, Primitivo. So they want they wanted to compare that. So we need a, we want to do it in Tuscany when we come to your farm. And I was in New York. I said, "Well, I'm here." And uh, then I ended up flying there, and we did this tasting. And um, I think Hugh Johnson was there. You know, there were some big shots, and I didn't know anybody. And you know, I was selling wine in New York and playing my saxophone. So. It was, for me, it was, uh, I was a little bit lost, I, I have to, to admit, but you know, it was quite in interesting. And um, here uh, and there I met uh, Paolo De Marchi, who's the owner of Isole Olena. And um, the next day we went to visit his winery and uh, I asked Paolo if he knew somebody that could help me because already in my mind was, you know, the idea that I wanted to, uh, to make wine, to bottle wine and to replant some of the vineyards. I mean, to, to just continue what my father had started. And he told me about this man, Piero Masi, who was, uh, had been his uh, director, agronomist, uh, I mean, you know, sort of manager of the farm for many years. And I was so impressed with the work they had done there with the vineyard. It's a difficult area there. It's a lot of rocks, you know, planting a vineyard there is not simple. And the farm was beautiful. It was an astonishing place. And uh, I don't know if you've been there, but Isola is, is really special. It's, it's very beautiful. So I got in touch with Piero and we start talking and he was interested in my sales knowledge and sales connection. I was interested in his, uh, you know, agronomic knowledge. So we sort of like helped each other. And um, so when a few years later, I mean, a couple of years later, I decided to go back to Italy. Piero was, um, well, I can say, you know, crucial. I mean, he was, uh, he was a very pragmatic, he is, I mean, he's, he's alive and thank God. And he's a very pragmatic man, very practical. And uh, well, he told me, we don't need, you know, new, new equipment. You can buy everything secondhand. And uh, I didn't have uh, money there, saved there, but I think that we've, was, about 50,000 euros, something like that. We, I was able to start, you know, four tanks were bought and then uh, everything was bought secondhand. And I, I, the, the winery didn't have walls at that time. So, and I started, my first harvest was 2000. And uh, I thought, I, I knew how to cook. So I said, well, how different is this going to be? I mean, <laughs> I... I'm going to try anyway, and uh, we'll see. And I also went to visit a lot of wineries at that time. So I was, I had this friend who was in the restaurant business. So he had ways to uh, to enter all the winery and to do tasting because he was, uh, you know, a customer. And um, it was fun. I mean, we we drove along and, and we drove a lot and, and tasted a lot of wines. And I had also my experience from New York, from the sales. So it's little by little things were shaping up. Piero suggested I planted Sangiovese, of course, but he also, also said, well, you should plant some uh, Cabernet, some uh, Petit Verdot, which I didn't know what it was at that time, and some Merlot. So I followed the advice and uh, 
we planted 1.3 hectares with uh, mostly Cabernet Sauvignon. I really wanted to plant Cabernet Franc. He said, no, 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 this is not going to, to ripe here. And, uh, and I, I would have loved to plant Cabernet Franc, to be very honest. But, uh, you know, he knew and I didn't know. So I followed his suggestion. And uh, we planted Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, which I uh, shortly after, like a few years later, overgrafted, and the Petit Verdot, which I kept. So that is the origin of, you know, the cuvee that I make of the, so about four or 5,000 bottles of Cabernet and uh, Petit Verdot, which are now co-fermented and uh, aged in stainless steel. And when I look at your vineyards near the house, what's so interesting is that as you walk the vineyards, you can see your own thought progression about how to plant in what is there, how they're trained and how they're planted. What was that progression? I guess the pruning in uh, Alberello came uh, partly because of the nostalgic memory from Tunisia and um, also because my area is a very fresh area. We get a lot of like, a lot of leaves, a lot of green. And uh, being that the first year as I was basically alone at the winery and at the farm, I was constantly late. And so in order to manage the, it was very difficult to manage the guillot because we, I would get a lot of, uh, we say it affastellamento in Italian. It's like when you get a lot of leaves covering your grapes. And uh, so then I would get uh, some rot, you know, some, uh, so it wasn't, and, and the, the, the goblet, I mean, the alberello would allow me to have the grapes just hanging below the, the, the leaves. So it was was better, it was easier also to manage. After some experience, it's actually not, but um, you know, that's what I thought at that time. Um, so the first four hectares were planted in a very conventional way, which is, you know, with wires and uh, wooden pole at the, at the beginning and at the end of the row, and then uh, metal poles in between. The second part of the vineyard has been planted all alberello with no wires and uh, just wood poles. The first one was planted at two meters row, which is too narrow. Now I'm planting 2.5 meters. Yeah, it's an evolution. Uh, I've made quite some mistakes because I want to try things on my own and understand them. So I've been kind of stubborn in, in, in some, some ways, but then uh, I didn't like what my neighbors did. So I didn't want to follow their advice, even though, you know, some of them were good, but I just, I just wanted to find out by myself. And you had not gone to school for viticulture vinification. So no, no, not it was all. about no. learning from friends and, and no. your own experience. Yes, yes. From tasting, from friends, from making a lot of phone calls. There are also two estates that helped me a lot when I was there. It was uh, Alyosha from Corsano Paterno and uh, Giovanni Davas from Poggio al Sole. I, I must say they're, they've been very uh, generous in their, uh, you know, giving advice and helping and being available. So I, I, I like to thank them because I have good memories from those times. And uh, um, but also I wanted to go my own my own path. So um, so now you're planning Missal. And you're planting it single vine to a pole. Yes, yes. But for example, in the winery, I stopped using, uh, I, I used yeast for the first two years. I, I started doing uh, in, indigenous yeast, I mean, natural fermentation from the third year before I even start organic farming. So your first estate bottling, no longer selling the wine and the grapes, but bottling it under your own label would have been 2000. Yes, I still sold part of the grapes. Actually, I sold the wine because I, I would uh, vinify everything and then uh, bottle a little part because I was, you know, I didn't know what the market, how the market would respond if I could sell the bottles. Also at that time, the wholesale market for the Chianti Classic was amazing. I mean, I remember I could command incredible prices that had nothing uh, to do with uh, any anything realistic because it was, I couldn't understand how you could find on the on the store shelves Chianti Classico for three ninety nine, and I would sell wholesale Chianti for four hundred euros the hundred liters, 
was just uh, very bizarre. But that's what of the one of the anomalies yeah, yes, yeah, of the of the anomaly. market. I mean, we have a lot of bottlers there, and they really distort the market, and that's a big problem actually. Um, but anyway, for me, it was good because that's in spring I could cash the money and sell the wholesale, and then you know start start selling the bottles too. The second year. My big question was, how do I repeat what I did last year? Because it was not so bad. And uh, let me understand how to do this again. We had a big frost in 2001. I lost 40% of my yield, but um, it was a good vintage. Then 2002 uh, was very, very wet, rained a lot. And I, uh, I was not confident enough to bottle the wine and actually sold it to, uh, to Giovanni from Porgial Sole. And I bottled some and I was sorry I bottled like a few years later because I, I, I was sorry I, I sold it, not bottled. I sold it a few years later. Because it tasted good. Yeah, it tasted very thin, and it, but it had that rose perfume and it was very, very subtle, very elegant in a way. Uh, but uh, it was too late. But it was also a learning experience of how, you know, to respect the, yeah, to respect the vintages and how to appreciate the differences uh, uh, and it seems like over time you've picked a little earlier, going for more acid. Yes. So the first change was, uh, you know, not working. I, I did. I never used a lot in the winery, but then after 2002, I, I stopped using everything. It was just a little bit of sulfur for bottling, and um, and nothing else. One of the reasons was also, I have to admit it, I didn't know how to use that stuff. I mean, the people would would come there and and sell. Tannins, and I, I didn't like them in the first place because you know they would put this powder in your glass of wine, and the wine suddenly would become like a big wine, but it was very dry in the mouth, and it would give me headaches, and I really didn't like it. Um, but the truth is also, I didn't know how to use uh, all these things, and uh, I didn't really want to learn. I also the way I cook is, you know, on, on good ingredients and 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 very little manipulation. Um, Two thousand five was the second next very important step because, okay, I was on the tractor, I was doing the spraying and I was really, really tired of those products I was using, even though it was a reasonable, for whatever it means, agriculture, it was still a chem chemical agriculture. And um, in 2004, I had met with Nicolas Jolie. I, uh, Kevin McKenna had introduced me, for example, to the wines of Nadia Verrua, Cascina Tagine in Northern Italy. We had discussed of how in 2003, that was, we had discussed of how maybe I could bottle a stainless steel tank, you know, a San Giovese that had been in stainless steel and not in wood. And so a lot of things were going on in my mind and some ideas were just um, growing and uh, maybe the seeds for the change were already planted. And uh, I was really not happy with the way I was running the farm in terms of agricultural because it was really getting to my body and, and to my lungs. And uh, I needed the change and I needed more acidity. I needed more freshness. I needed to change something. And um, so with the start of biodynamic farming in 2004, so one of the major changes was, was stopping when you cut the, it's not pruning, but when you cut the tips of the, of uh, the canes, you know, of the, oh, of okay. the vineyard, you know, like, like a, a top topping. Yeah. yeah top. I think, yes. You see that a lot in, uh, you see that a lot in Bordeaux, you see that a lot in Chianti. The vineyards look so neat and so like they've been to the hairdresser, but you know, it's, it's terrible because you're really cutting the heads to, you know, the thinking head of the plant. And uh, that was uh, a very important change because I was able to harvest earlier, the acidity got better. And uh, I was also getting more confident because at the beginning I would do what my neighbors did, which was harvest late. Uh, you know, I would get into almost overripeness and um, macerate long. And you know, the more the best. And uh, a lot in wood, a lot of time in wood. And I didn't realize that at first that I was losing a lot of, you know, the quality of the grapes in, in the process. And so 2004, 2005 really made the difference. 2005 was a difficult vintage, but I, that was, I, I really found out that I could have, you know, good acidity in my, in my wines and in my vineyard. So I started harvesting earlier and, uh, 
uh, well, little by little, I guess we, we got to where I am now, which is uh, for me, for example, the Chianti 11 has been a reference point in terms of acidity, elegance, and thinness. It has long, it, it's long wine. It's what I was looking for for many years. The wood has been also difficult to understand. Uh, for many years, I felt like somebody was coming in the winery and was doing something in, in my back because I would, the Rosso Toscano, which is a Sangiovese in stainless steel, would, uh, I would identify with, with it. The Chianti took me a few years to really get to a bottle of wine that I could say, yes, that's what I did. That's what I had in mind. And uh, of course, there's room for improvement, but you know, it's, uh, it's pretty much what I, what I would like to, to do. And this reflects the vintage in a good way. So it's been a very f- interesting process, I think. Uh, we've done a vertical tasting a few years ago of the Chianti, and it's interesting to see how the wines are really um, it's like the first wines were really covered, like they were afraid, you know, it's like protected by wood, by tannins, by really covered. And little by little, they just like undress and show their face. So <clears throat> in terms of uh, planting, we were talking about that before. Uh, I've done a lot of selection massal in the vineyard. I'm doing a, a mix of a lot of things and trying to get as much biodiversity in uh, what I plant. Um, I and just, there's fava and oats between the rows. Yes. And that helps with the esco. Yes, it helps also. I have a lot of clay in part of my vineyards are clay, so it becomes it's a very hard clay. So it, that really helps the soil to get softer. Uh, yes, I, I do biodynamic farming. Uh, I tend to talk less and less of how, of the technicalities of how I work because, uh, you know, you go to wine tasting and for the people who have not been on the vineyard, it's very hard to visualize. And especially, I mean, not everybody's trained as a agriculture. And uh, so you talk about fava vines, you talk about prepara that we 500, 501. Um, I like to talk more about the wine. It's for me, the, the comparison is like, you know, going to a good restaurant and asking the, the chef which pots he use. I mean, it's, that's really the point. But at the same time, I think it's important that customers know that uh, we're doing a very, there is a big issue with, you know, uh, agricultural process right now. And I think that the more people are aware of what's going on there, the better it is for the earth, really, because it's really not very good. And um, so it's good to talk about it. But to, what we do in Biodynamics is basically we, we try to maintain a good balance uh, the balance of the plants, the balance of the soil, and we try to respect cycles. In 2008, I had, it was the last year before I overgrafted the Merlot, and it was the rows of Merlot were overproducing, were overloaded with grapes, and in the same row, but below, it was Sangiovese that was very well balanced. It was very interesting to see that with the same spraying and the same treatment, the Merlot got all ill, and I didn't harvest anything and the Sangiovese was all perfectly healthy. So the plants protect themselves. And uh, the illness of the fruit is a way for the plant to protect itself, herself, uh, yeah. So the plant will, it's an abortion really. The plant will say, well, I'm sorry, I'm gonna sacrifice the fruit, but that's the way for me to survive. And the illness is actually something that protects the plant. I'm reading these days an article that was actually originally written in on the New Yorker, and um, it is about the studies that have been made of how plants make decisions, and all the research that have been done. Like, and I think that's a very, very interesting field. And it would be great if people could be more sensitive to this issue. We tend to, we have because we have a brain we think that we can control the world and uh, we tend to control other human beings. And we, of course we want to control plants. I mean, what are they, you know, they just, uh, but it's amazing to see how plants make decision and how plants have uh, a survival process. And we have to consider that plants have no brain, of course, but they are living creatures and uh, they cannot move. So their survival is linked to other processes and other mechanism. You cut a plant down to 10% of what it was, the plant will regrow. So the plant is, the survival of the plant is not linked to its integrity. 
I was reading yesterday that uh, certain plants, when they are attacked by certain worms, certain bugs, they, um, how do you say that? They produce, a, it's a sort of an hormone or a, a, a smell that attract bees that it's the kill those bugs. So it's fantastic. It's really, I mean, we, we need to really to step back a little bit and to, of course, we're talking about agriculture and, you know, before agriculture existed, men were hunters and uh, raccoglietori, they would pick whatever was available. So agriculture needs the intervention of a man. I mean, but we have to be more humble and uh, realize that the plant have their own life and their own identity and, um, you know, the process of fertilizing of, of the herbicides and, you know, really using the plant as a tool to produce is really something that we should reconsider. And um, I think this whole movement of, I don't like the term of natural wines, but let's talk about territorial wine, about wines that resemble to the land they come from is... Um, really important because it brings with it um, a working process that will help understand better the way we can work in agriculture. And you have started to lease another vineyard site in Vignano from a couple of sisters who were previously selling the grapes to Cooperative, and they were working conventionally, and you are thinking to move that to organic and biodynamic. What's the process there? It started already, yes, it's true. Um, in order to uh, replant part of my vineyard, uh, because the old part was not in such a good shape, and even though I tried to replant in between the old plants, it was not very successful. So at a certain point last year, when I was uh, able to finally find a vineyard, I was looking for something smaller and closer, I was able to find something far and larger. It's six hectares of, it's a fantastic vineyard. It's six hectares, 450 meters high. It's all Sangiovese, about 20, 25 years old. Very, very well kept. Uh, it's in the position of what would have been called 15 years ago, a bad vineyard because it's facing west, northwest. Now with the change of climate, it's really, really nice. I harvested the last last year for the first time. It's uh, crisp, it's more, more acidity, and there is a, a rightness in the wine that come from there that I'm very excited uh, about. Yes, they have, uh, what, what, what they did was also reasonable agriculture for whatever it means, as I said before. So, but we started already last year. I mean, we, we, we changed it right away. So we were able for the 2013 harvest to already produce grape with no pesticides and no herbicide. I mean, completely uh, organic. Of course, the, the translation to be certified organic is uh, takes three years. I will start biodynamic farming there as soon as I can. I'm already applying some of the of what I'm doing at Monte Secondo. It needs some, it will take some organization, but yes, we are already starting that and, and we are on the process of. And you've also been using clay amphora at Monte Secondo for some of the aging of the red wine. And how has that worked out? It's a fantastic experience. I first tried the wines in clay uh, from uh, some friends, producers. And I was impressed at the purity of the fruit that the, I, I like to call those wines. I, I like to see that those wines have a sort of a luminosity. My, my goal, my dream is to make wine that are very direct, that are very, um, that have a strong personality. I like to call them vertical wines. I don't like horizontal wines. For me, horizontal wines are pleasers, you know, wine that do not show themselves right away. I mean, they, they try to maybe be more than one one personality. The amphora is also a container that uh, helps me, that allows me to do a long maceration, which in uh, with Sangiovese had not been had not really been done before. So I was very excited to be able to start that. Uh, I was able to uh, get some uh, very good amphoras. Uh, the clay in the amphora is very crucial. Also, I like to say that uh, the 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 amphora comes from. It's soil, it's water, it's heat, and it's light. So it's a material that comes from the earth. It's a natural container, it's very porous, 
And uh, I was able to do some long maceration, six month maceration on the skin, after which the wine is racked and bottled shortly after that. It's a very interesting process. It's dangerous also because they are multipliers. They really enhance the process of maturation of the evolution of the wine. Also, you have to be careful because the wine can also go wrong very quickly. Because it's unlined in for us, so it's not lined with anything. They're completely bare, yes. And then you've also experimented with even going longer, like eight months maceration for certain lots. No, I haven't. Um, six months on the skins. Um, what I have done is that I have, okay, this is the point. Uh, the amphora are in the winery where I where I make the wine and it gets a little warmer in the summer, even though it's very well exposed to the north face, to the north wind. But still, uh, the amphora are very porous and I think it would be very risky to keep the wines in there during the summer. What I have done on the first vintage of 2010, which was actually, uh, I had some Cabernet in there because the amphora came late. That's all, you know, I had three amphora coming in. I wanted to try, uh, is that I put them, when I take the skins out, I put the, the wine back in the amphora. But the experience has shown me that I have to be very careful there because it's like putting a person, the, the, the skins protect the wine. And uh, doing that is like putting a person that has not been exposed to the sun in the middle of the summer, you know, in a very warm beach or something like that. The person could get burned. So the the air, the porosity of the amphora is so high that uh, we have to be careful. So my approach now is gonna be to rack the amphora to bottle. And so the aging is gonna be in the bottle. I'm trying to release those wines later. I had my 2012 two nights ago. I think the it's good in the mouth. It's 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 compact. It's it's it has a good shape. But the nose is still a little bit. In French, we say décousu. It's you know it's uh, it's not together. Also, there were bottles that were in my luggage and have been troubled. So I don't know exactly. But I think that September, one year and a half in the bottle, is I think a good time to start really tasting the wine and to see where they could go. But it's interesting and. Uh, it is true that the amphora accelerates the process, but then you all you you still need a lot of aging. It's fascinating to try the winery, the wine which is done in Stalastic, the Rosso Toscano is my first one, which was born as a Chianti Classico, but then was taken out of the Appellation because the Chamber of Commerce was not uh, in favor of this type of wine and uh, so refused it. Uh, so I, I every year I take out of the Appellation the Rosso Toscano, which is to all effects Sangiovese born and, and, and it's actually aged in the stainless steel as a Chianti atto a divenire. So, to be Chianti Classico, but then when I bottle it, I take it out. It's very interesting, a few months after harvest in January to try the stainless steel and the amphora, and we're already in two different worlds. Also, I produce a Chianti Classico, which is the main wine or the most representative. Anyway, it's, it's an important wine for me. It's a Sangiovese Canaiola and Colorino fermented in stainless steel and aged in oak for about a year. I have worked with 500 liters tonneau for the last year. I'm starting now to experiment with 1500 liters barrels, oval barrels. They come from very good makers in Northern Italy and they came twice to try the wines before. So I trust that we're gonna find a way to deal with new wood in a very reasonable uh, um, approach. I mean, the wine so far tastes very good there. And then um, it was, uh, it's the Cabernet Sauvignon, small production that I really uh, vinify and age as I do with the Rosso Toscano. So the idea is have, to have a purity, fruit, acidity, not looking to make a super Tuscan there or, uh, you know, a big cab, but a territorial Cabernet. I will start working with concrete tanks starting this September. I really look forward to that. And uh, stainless steel is a great container to do the fermentation. It's very easy to work, but I think the concrete will uh, bring a little more uh, air and lightness to the wines. And you're planning in the future, perhaps an expanded winery facility. What other changes may happen for Monte Secondo in the coming years? It will be more space, really. It's, uh, um, I mean, if I'm getting this, the concrete this year, uh, stainless steel will be probably outside of the winery for now, for the time being, for the fermentation. Uh, maybe I'll just move the barrels from where they are to the new f new facility. Uh, but 
I'm not planning any major changes in the sense of, I mean, it would be more practical for me. So I'm working on, you know, working in a better way, in an easier way, making my life easier. That's now we have, we, we have, we spend a lot of time in moving things around, bottles, boxes, pallets, and that's expensive. Just the two of us at Monte Secondo. So I have a helper who is a fantastic person. He really is, um, he's also very passionate and very curious about uh, biodynamics. So he's been attending some courses and he really helps me a lot. And then I have uh, another person who helps me in Vignano and um, he needs a little more, you know, training, but he's, he's, he's getting there, yes. And have any of your sons expressed interest in following you in the winemaking? They're curious about it. Um, no, so far they're not working with me or uh, we, we drink together, we taste together. And, um, you know, I, I like them to have their own path and, uh, and uh, have their own apprenticeship, I would say. I, uh, I really think that uh, learning to work with your father is probably not the best. Uh, approach. So I really would hope that they will uh, have their own experience. And if later on they, they are willing to come, one of them will be more than happy with that. And uh, we'll see which, who, I have three boys. So, uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see. At this time, it's just, you know, no, nothing really. No, they're not there now. Yes. Silvio Masana, he is there at Monte Secondo. Thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Silvio Masana of Monte Secondo. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.